Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Hello, friends. Happy Easter. He is risen. If you did not have the opportunity to be with us for Easter Sunday, then I'm glad you're connecting in this way. And before we really jump in, I just have one quick comment, and that is, yes, we are looking at the story of Noah and the flood today, which could throw you off. It could cause you to wonder if I forgot that it's Easter. And so I just want to say up front, no, I didn't forget that it's Easter. So stay tuned. All right. The story of Noah and the flood has caused me a fair amount of inner turmoil and trouble over the years. And yes, I know that Noah's Ark gets used as a mural and a decoration in children's bedrooms and preschool rooms, hospitals, doctor's offices. It's like, here come all of the cute little animals two by two. But when I think about Noah's Ark, I can't help seeing people and animals fleeing a flood of mud and debris, splintered logs and rocks pushed by this wall of water, just rushing through valleys and mashing everything under, homes destroyed, slamming into people, leaving broken bones and gaping wounds. And I see everyone and everything scrambling to higher ground until there's no higher ground. And people and animals are taking off swimming, looking for any land that might be visible. But how long can they keep it up? The water is cold. The rain keeps falling, the energy wanes, their muscles are weakened, and they're panicked and vomiting and choking and fear-stricken and gasping for breath. And when I think about the story of Noah and the flood, I see drowning people and drowning animals dying. Genesis 6.23 says, Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals, creatures that move along the ground, birds were wiped from the earth. Now, the backstory to Noah is a story of violence. When Adam and Eve first ate the fruit, there there was no mention of sin. But then you have the story of Cain and Abel and It's the introduction of violence into creation, and it also brings the first mention of the word sin. It's violence, Cain and Abel, and and then the violence in the world just escalates. Vengeance becomes an epidemic. People are paying back what was done to them 77 times, and as the violence in the world escalates, there's this strange passage in Genesis 6, that says, 
the sons of God went into the daughters of humans. And it uses the, the exact same language as Adam and Eve. It says, you know, Adam and Eve says, seeing that the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil looked delightful, they took it and they ate it. And Genesis 6 says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans looked delightful and they took them. And so it's the exact same language. It's depicting this breakdown of not only human to human relationships, but human and non-human relationships, whatever that means. And so relationships at every level were falling apart. Humans are turning against God and they're turning against one another and creation is turning against humans and these non-humans, these angelic beings are violating humans and they're, they're doing the same action as Eve and Adam, seeing something delightful and taking it. And so Genesis 6 verse 12 says, God looked at the earth and behold, it was ruined. We're told that the earth had become filled up with violence, so much so that God regretted ever making humans. So this story that began by telling us God looked at the earth and behold, it was good. Now God's looking at the earth and behold, it is ruined. It's utterly destroyed. The Hebrew word is sahat. Old Testament scholar Matthew Lynch points out that the flood is not a story of God destroying creation. It is a story of God looking at creation and lamenting that it was already destroyed. And so, like a potter at the wheel who looks down and realizes that this clay is filled with holes and air bubbles this potter realizes, he's like, this isn't going to work. This clay can't be fired. It's ruined. And so the potter returns the clay to formlessness and starts over. And similarly, God looks at the world and it's ruined. And so God preserves eight people out of all of the old creation and returns the rest of creation to this waters of chaotic formlessness and then just like genesis 1 says that god's spirit blew over the waters genesis 8 it, it like repatterns it says the same thing god blew over the waters and dry land appeared so god starts over now given all of those important details of the story which are helpful i still wonder to myself i say were there really only eight people on the face of the entire planet who were not violent? Did every person who was swept away in the flood of Noah understand what was happening? Did they feel like they had been given a chance to make a different choice? What about children and infants living in those days? What about young people who were still in the middle of figuring out who they wanted to be? What about people born into families and cultures of violence, likely telling them that they were serving God and they were serving their people by their violence? I think about the way that 
violence enters cultures and tribes and politics and religions throughout history and even today, violence is treated as sacred and honorable and celebrated based on its context. So it's revered or it's condemned based on the narrative of a given people. People are told that they are serving God or they are serving their nation or they are proving their honor, their heroism by killing whoever they are told they should kill. And so I wondered to myself, if I was born in the ancient Near East in Noah's day, would I have been any different than the people who died in the flood of Noah? And I honestly don't know. Like, another way to put it is, so if I was born in Rwanda into a Hutu family in the 1970s, would I have celebrated or even joined the genocide and killed Tutsis? Or if I was born to a nationalistic family in Germany in the 1920s, would I have grown up and celebrated the extermination of Jewish people? Or if I was born into an Al-Qaeda family in the 1980s, would I have celebrated or possibly participated in the attack on the Twin Towers? Or if I was born to a West Point family in New York, would I celebrate the airstrikes in the war on terror that have left 22,000 civilians dead? The real question that I'm asking, it's larger than just the people who died in the flood. History is full of hundreds of millions of people who were born into cultures and religions who've never heard the name of Jesus. And then they're left to patch together their way of life from their parents and their village and their culture, their religion, the politics of their people, the technology of their day. What is the ultimate plight of those people? The real question I'm asking is, once God deems someone's life to be ruined, utterly destroyed, beyond repair, does God simply mash them under, wipe them out, give up on them? Does God regret their existence? And what does it take for God to call his creation ruined? And once God calls his creation ruined, what does God do next? So you could call it a heaven and hell question. I'm asking, how could a loving God send millions of people to death or to hell for being born at the wrong time or into the wrong family or the wrong culture? That's the question I'm wondering about. And it used to be that whenever I saw a mural of Noah's Ark, that I was thinking these kinds of thoughts. But now, whenever I see a little kid's mural of Noah's Ark, and my mind wants to go to those graphic images of people drowning and starts asking all of these dark questions, now I picture something else. I picture a lifeboat, the absolute biggest lifeboat you've ever seen, and I see Jesus, and Jesus is diving down into the depths of those dark, destructive waters of Noah's flood. And Jesus is hauling people out, children who didn't know any better, teenagers who are just, they were just doing what they saw modeled, young men who thought they were honoring their tribe by killing others, 
Husbands who have no excuse for their abuse. Mothers who took it out on their children. Person after person after person after person. So where do I get this picture? Well, you see, I spent a lot of time with Passover Thursday, the the Last Supper, and I explored the horror of Good Friday, and I spent a lot of time reflecting on the resurrection hope of Easter, but I had not spent much time with the day known as Holy Saturday. I thought that day was just the day that Jesus' body lay in the grave, rotting and dead, but I was wrong. It's the day that Jesus descended to the dead, descended to hell, to the underworld, to Sheol, to Hades. Jesus was doing what Jesus did on earth in hell. He was preaching the good news. He was spreading his arms as wide as possible so that everyone might come within reach of his saving embrace. And the church has long taught and celebrated Christ's descent into hell on Holy Saturday. It's called the harrowing of hell. It's the day that Jesus destroyed hell's gates and rescued the dead who had long been imprisoned as captives there. You say, okay, give me some Bible here. Where, Where do I find this? Well, before Jesus was ever murdered, he pictured himself as one who would enter the strong man's house, Satan's house, and bind the strong man and plunder his house. Satan is the strong man. And it turns out Jesus wasn't talking about plundering things from Satan's house. He was talking about taking back people from Satan, people who had died imprisoned in their sins. It's as if Satan just could not resist this opportunity to kill Jesus, but by doing so, the door was opened for Jesus to plunder Satan's house. 1 Peter verse th- chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So did you catch that? It just talked about Jesus after his death going and preaching the good news to the people who died in the flood. And Peter goes on a few lines later and says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are now dead that though they are judged in the flesh as humans, like, yeah, they experienced their bodies drowning, although that happened, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. The Apostle Peter also preached about Jesus' descent to the dead in his famous Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 25. When the Apostle Paul wrote about Jesus' descent to Hades. He wrote about Jesus leading many captives 
out of Hades. He wrote about Jesus making a public spectacle of the powers and the authorities, disarming them, destroying every dominion, every authority, every power, even the last enemy, death, triumphing over them all by the cross. The thief on the cross, who was executed with Jesus, gasped out. He begged Jesus to remember him, and Jesus promised him, Today you will be with me in paradise. And I wonder how many millions more joined that thief in the joyful procession out of Hades. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that when Jesus died, the earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs were broken open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. They went into the holy city and they appeared to many people. Now, earthquakes in Jesus' day were considered to be mass meetings of the dead. And the place of the dead, or Sheol or Hades, it was considered to be the center of the earth. And so that's this an earthquake is like, whoa, it's a, a gathering of the dead. And it's as if this earthquake that happened when Jesus died symbolized all of the dead gathering, waiting for their liberator, Jesus, to free them, to lead them out. It's been noted that in the Bible, when Satan causes earthquakes, people fall into crevices and they die. Like, see 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10. But when Jesus causes earthquakes, people come out of the ground and they live. And so finally, in the book of Revelation, it begins with Jesus saying, I am the living one. I was dead, but look. Now I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades, Revelation 1.18. So are you getting the picture of what Jesus was doing on Holy Saturday? Uh, for I had slides for our Sunday gathering, and so people could see these verses, and I'll put them in the notes at the bottom of the podcast if you want to look this scripture up. But are you getting this picture? It wasn't the Sermon on the Mount. It was the Sermon in Hell, Hades, Sheol, this mass gathering of the dead. Not only those who died in Noah's flood, but the millions upon millions of people down through the centuries, people who had never heard of Jesus, people who grew up in families and cultures and politics and religions that never led them to the one true God. The imprisoned spirits, those who were disobedient long ago, those who cursed God and died, all these people, they were given this, it's a post-mortem opportunity to accept the embrace of Jesus. That's what it is. And so I like to imagine Jesus still starting out with the Beatitudes. In hell, in Hades, Sheol, the underworld, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Those who hunger and thirst for justice. The merciful. The pure in heart. The peacemakers. Jesus is letting 
his love fill hell, inviting these people to be who they were truly created to be. The church fathers and mothers down through the centuries, it's like they couldn't say enough about the importance of Holy Saturday, the, the descent of Jesus. You've got people like Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Origen, Iranius, Cyprian, Cyril, Tertullian, Chrysostom, Clement of Alexandria, Gregory of Nyssa, Aquinas, Augustine, John of Damascus, on and on. The Apostles' Creed was the early church's way of condensing their whole teaching, the, the core of their faith, into just a few lines these lines that stood the test of time, generation after generation, as an accurate summary of Scripture, biblical content. And so the Apostles' Creed says he was crucified, he died, he was buried, he descended to the dead, he descended into hell. In his famous Easter sermon, Chrysostom says, Hell is in an uproar, for it is now made captive. Hell took a body and discovered God. Clement of Alexandria says it this way. He says, the Lord descended to Hades for no other end, no other reason, but to preach, <coughs> but to preach the gospel. Since God's punishments are saving and disciplinary, leading to conversion, and choosing rather repentance than the death of a sinner. Von Balthasar says, from now on, even hell belongs to Christ. During the Reformation, when the church was rethinking and rehashing and arguing so many things, the Protestants, who disagreed about a lot of things, they wrote this document called the Formula of Concord, where they agreed on the elements that are essential to the gospel and shouldn't be abandoned or made into peripheral arguments. And so in that document, they said that they were simply satisfied to know that Christ has descended to those in hell and that he has destroyed hell for all believers. Now, the question comes, were there any people on Holy Saturday who simply were not compelled by Jesus' message, who they, they weren't interested in being led out of Hades. Were there people who looked at their former prison gates that were burst open and they said, I'm not leaving. I, I would rather stay, not because of a locked gate, but because their heart had become their prison? Well, it's possible. Perhaps we have no way of knowing. God doesn't force his way into people's lives who ultimately don't want him. And so Holy Saturday doesn't answer all of our heaven and hell questions because our heaven and hell questions aren't only about God. They're questions about humans. It's not only a question of, well, will God ultimately embrace anyone who's willing to open their arms to him? God's hospitality means that he never drags his guests into his own home. Jesus doesn't drag anyone kicking and screaming out of hell. God doesn't force his love on anyone. And so we're left with a human question. Will there be people who ultimately 
don't want the love of God, who resist the love of God forever? We don't know. Not all of our questions about what Jesus does after we die are answered. But Holy Saturday says something massively hopeful to us about how God approaches ruined lives, utterly destroyed lives, lives that are beyond repair. And so you may need to hear this for yourself. You might need to hear this for a loved one or maybe for both. Yeah, some people, like Noah, go through the floods of life and somehow they make it through relatively unscathed. But that isn't the majority of people. A lot more people can relate to those who died in the flood. A lot of people's lives become ruined, utterly destroyed, beyond repair, through such a myriad of events. There's no way to even list them all. Sometimes they literally lose their life, and sometimes their life feels like a living hell. It feels like death to them. And myriads of people are just trying to patch together a life based on their tribe, their family, their culture, their background, their technology. And they haven't really heard the name of Jesus. Or if they have heard the name of Jesus, they associate it with something ugly rather than with the self-sacrificing, other-oriented, enemy-loving way of Jesus. So when your life becomes so completely ruined, so utterly destroyed, so beyond repair, when you get mashed under and suffocated by a flood, and it looks like there's no coming back, no way forward, whether you are an innocent victim and it's just wrong place, wrong time, or whether you are guilty as charged, condemned and convicted, whether you go down begging for mercy or cursing God with your last breath, the Jesus of the resurrection is a Jesus who dives into the death waters. He dives into what is completely ruined. Addiction, divorce, abuse, violence, cruelty, greed, consumerism, gluttony, fear, death. He dives below the light of day, below the breath of life, out of the lifeboat, into the flood, down to the prison that's holding you. The psalmist says, if I make my bed in hell, in Sheol, you are there. Jesus busts the gates off that prison. He opens his arms as wide as he possibly can. Jesus preaches the good news to the imprisoned spirits, to the disobedient spirits. Jesus extends the offer of life to all, to those who died cursing him in violence. Ruined isn't the end. Dead isn't the end. Utterly destroyed, beyond repair, is not the end. And scripture is clear why. It's because God wants to bring you up from those depths. Floating next to Noah's Ark is the world's biggest lifeboat. And Jesus is diving in to haul you up to the lifeboat. Because as Ephesians 4.10 says, He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Ephesians 4.10. Origen says it this way. He says, we're not to think that Christ is in heaven in such a way as to be absent from the depths. So what will we do? 
with this wide embrace of Jesus? Well, it's ultimately up to each one of us to decide, will you reach out your arms to receive the embrace of Jesus? So I want to conclude by asking you to do something. To close your eyes and in in your mind, see your floodwaters. See the parts of your life that feel imprisoned, disobedient, beyond repair, ruined, even your living health. And see Jesus swimming down to you. Jesus is disarming Satan. He's unlocking you. He's busting down the gates. He's opening his arms to you. And if it reflects your heart's response, I want to invite you to position your arms in an embrace and imagine Jesus' arms around you and wrap your arms around him and feel Jesus' strong arms holding you, pulling you up, 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 out of that flood, out of that death, up to air, up to life, beyond what is ruined. And I invite you to sit with that moment, to listen to what Jesus is saying to you. He's risen, which takes on even deeper meaning once we grasp the depths that he came from and all who are with him. Love you, friends. Happy Easter. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.